Hi there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Asking for a Friend, a podcast that covers all those topics relating to sex, intimacy, and relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature, and so if there are little ones around, it's best for you to turn off and listen later. This episode is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. Very sneaky little discount. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. Why is it that we don't speak to our doctors more about sexual health? And why is opening up about this part of us even more challenging for men than it is for women? My guest on today's podcast is Dr. Anthony Smith. He's a Cape Town-based general practitioner who's been practicing family medicine for over 20 years, but has specialized in human sexuality and is a fellow of the European Society for Sexual Medicine. He is the current president of the Southern African Sexual Health Association, or SASHA, who run amazing free monthly webinars, by the way. And he lectures at the University of Cape Town in human sexuality. Like me, he's also committed to educating fellow clinicians in South Africa in sexual health. Anthony, it's just awesome to be talking to you on Asking for a Friend. How are you doing? How, how's everything going for you in Cape Town with COVID situation, with your practice, you know, in this really weird time that we live in? Katriona, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Um, that's uh, it's really cool to be with you. Yeah, it's a really strange time. It's been a year of so many different parts. At the moment, you can really feel that the tension is lessening a little bit. We had a very, very hectic late October, November, December, half of January. Um, you know, my, my, my practice sees a lot. It's a, you know, it's, a, it's a general practice. So we see the young, the old, everybody in between, and a lot of COVID cases, a lot of people being managed at home, and uh, certainly a lot of people in hospital. Um, so really busy, a lot of anxiety, and, you know, very frenetic. But happily, there's a steep lessening of the pressure. And um, I think we're all feeling it and feeling it with some relief. And it's not to say that there aren't still a lot of ill people in the hospitals are still not busy, but there's definitely a lessening of the tension. I can share that sentiment as a member of the public, you know, rather than a medical professional, that there is this lessening of tension around generally. But it's interesting, I guess, one of the things we saw last year when kind of COVID really started tsunamiing itself across the world from northern hemisphere to southern hemisphere was we saw this kind of moving aside of everything else that we face from a medical perspective in order to prioritize COVID. I mean, we saw massive decline in people seeking out care for cancer and getting checkups mm. and things like that. And mm. I wondered a little bit about people seeking out your help for sexual health difficulties, if you saw a massive decline in that when COVID hit as well. Yes. So, Katriona, the first couple of months after COVID hit us and the lockdown happened, practice just fell off the cliff. It was exceptionally quiet. And then people started getting into the, the, the habit and felt more comfortable with using online services. So there's quite a lot of mental health work done, um, counseling, discussing, um, dealing with depression and anxiety. And then through that, filtered 
um, people with sexual dysfunctions, the time was there for people to be able to discuss them. And some of them still felt, you know, the urgency to be able to discuss certain types of problems. So, you know, some of your sexual dysfunctions, which, which needed a longer period of time and assessment, and you could say presented um, as sexual problems to begin with, they still were filtering through. What really did diminish, though, were all the sexual problems associated with routine everyday medical checks and um, various other medical problems. So, you know, those people who come in for general problems for uh, well men's checks, prostate checks, that type of thing, you wouldn't be opportunistically asking them about those problems. Uh, and then you know, to come in for routine screenings for STIs or, or really uh, cardiovascular checks. All of these types of things really just disappeared for a while and then started very slowly to dribble back again. And then did you see kind of that dip again when a sort of kind of second wave hit, October, November, December? Did that same thing happen again? Or was people's behavior different now, the second wave? I mean, it was a curious situation because the second wave was far worse than the first wave. More people were sick. The spikes were, were higher, as everybody's seen. But people's behavior and their sense of risk-taking uh, or, or just their familiarity with wanting to come into a doctor's office was they were less averse. So, so, so people still did come in. And, and in fact, the challenge there was to, in fact, it was very, very busy. Um, and the challenge there was to make time for the kind of time that I usually use for somebody who wants a detailed sexual health consultation. So you know, for them, I would usually spend often 45 minutes to an hour. And, and it was just too frenetic and difficult to be able to take care in detail with those kinds of problems. So, in fact, it was me who had to defer them rather than patients who were deferring them. That's so yeah. fascinating, Anthony. I mean, that that shift in behavior um, Firstly, to have to get for the patients to have to get comfortable online. I saw that with my clients as well, and obviously a massive surge in mental health difficulties. But then, so interesting to hear that almost the inverse was happening, where people's behaviour was kind of reverting back to you know feeling comfortable in person, despite there being this massive surge in in cases in COVID. Now, I guess being a sexual health um, physician as you are, I, I want to know your take on why you think it's so difficult for, for patients to, to talk sex, to talk shop that in that way with their doctors. Sure, Katrina. I mean, that's the, that's the, the big thing that we deal with in, in uh, general practice, you know, in primary care, because you know, there's so many different kinds of problems that we deal with and a small subsection of people feel comfortable, but the vast majority really find it quite difficult. And um, th there really are so many different reasons. Uh, I suppose it also depends on the demographic. Um, so if you are um, an older, more conservative person, um, just actually having the words and being able to feel comfortable with being able to articulate what the problem is, is incredibly difficult. I mean, there's still a huge amount of stigma associated with, uh, and shame associated with um, revealing that you've got a problem with your sexuality or your sexual health. And this will prevent many, many uh, people from, from, from speaking about it. And when you speak to your doctor, you often are working in the words of physical problems. So patients often don't really know how to translate, unless there's a clear physical issue associated with their sexual health, it's quite hard for them to articulate what their problems are. And th that's why 
um, sometimes, and this is for men specifically, I find, they'll come in, you know, saying, or they won't even say it initially, it'll probably be after a number of other issues have been spoken about. They'll say, well, I've got a problem with my erections or things aren't working so well, or they'll use some kind of code word to be able to suggest that there's a problem which then can be looked into. But I mean, to, to come back to your original question, you know, some of the other factors which are so important is the, the attitude, the perceived attitude of the doctor that, they, that they're speaking to. And, and many patients just don't feel comfortable because the doctor or the health practitioner gives off that aura of really not being receptive. So, you know, if you're somebody who's relatively curt, you kind of keep your consultations very uh, orientated, point orientated, very short, uh, you don't appear to be accommodating to things which are perhaps a little bit more kind of unusual or less stereotypical, or um, you appear to be judgmental or biased, um, your patients aren't going to feel open enough. And sometimes they have to kind of try you out and establish a relationship and actually find that you're somebody who they can speak to. So it may only be really after a number of consultations that hesitantly your patient will open up and speak about a sexual issue um, where, where they've built up that trust that they have with you. I don't know how you're, you're I think you, you're probably coming from a, a totally different end because from your side, um, people are really primed to speak about it. Whereas from, from, from my end in primary care, you almost have to open up that channel, open up and show the door so that people can speak into, can, can uh, step into that uh, conversation. No, listen, my title sexologist is just like an invitation for people to speak about sex. And that doesn't matter if I'm in a dinner party set, well, you know, pre-COVID in a dinner party setting or, you know, for people to come and see me formally in my practice. So for me, it's it's totally different because their expectation is that I should or, you know, hopefully I will be comfortable talking about sex. And, you know, right off the bat, I will say to all of my clients, I talk about this topic as easily as I talk about, you know, the sushi I'm planning on having for dinner tonight, depending on what it is that my meal plan is for that week. So, you know, for me, it's super, super easy, but I wasn't brought up like that. And I wasn't sure. taught that I had to go to university and do a degree to learn how to do that. And so I've had to, I've had to get a qualification to be comfortable in this topic effectively is what I mm, said. Mm, and mm. I think what you you spoke of there was so interesting. It's actually, the it's not just the patient or the doctor, but the dynamic between the patient and the doctor. So what does that space feel like? And in therapy, we often, you know, we often need to, to make sure that the space we're providing for our clients is a safe containing space where they feel that the therapist is non-judgmental, kind of mm. holds their needs in the highest regard and is able to be there for them without um, prejudice and so on. Whereas, as you're saying, in a, in, a, in, a, in a medical setting and perhaps in a general medicine practice particularly, when you aren't, you know, when you don't have specialists written on your door, such as a urologist or a gynecologist who, you know, those are the doctors that talk about these parts of our bodies, then there is, I guess, a reluctance. And I can say that personally. I know when I've been for... STI screenings with my GP, you know, it's mm. despite me being comfortable, it's, it's about gauging is she comfortable, you know, are, are they comfortable to speak about this or is this something they do as a routine because it's part of their practice. And that dynamic is so interesting because I think it, it can often lead to a patient not feeling that they 
they have the space, the permission to ask and to speak and not knowing who to go to. And then on the flip side of it, you have the healthcare provider not knowing if, if their patient wants them to go there or if they feel comfortable to have this conversation with them as their doctor. And especially when you've got one GP or one doctor seeing an entire family or seeing a couple as both the, their doctors. So it's a fascinating dynamic, but something that really always, uh, I guess, has always stood out for me. And I had a very interesting conversation um, with Tatleng Mofaking, Dr. T, mm. on the very first podcast I did on Asking for a Friend about sexual pleasure. And one of the things she spoke very kind of assertively about was how sexual pleasure is almost always left out of the medical room when it comes to yeah. seeing a healthcare yeah. provider. You know, it's okay, it's not working okay, it's not happening the way you want it to happen, let's fix it. But it's not necessarily about thinking further afield in terms of sexual health when it comes to pleasure. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's such a good point. And, it, and it's something which, when you're working in sexual medicine, is really quite um, a challenge on some level. So, you know, when one thinks back about when, when, when did the culture change that there was more permission uh, for people to feel uh, that they were able to speak and men in particular. Um, and that was, if we look back at the times when Viagra was introduced into uh, the kind of medical community and Viagra was a double-edged sword when it came in. On the one hand, what it did was give massive amounts of uh, permission. It also uh, was kind of made into a, f a, f a physical problem, something which many people interpreted as a psychological issue and, and, and therefore mitigated against some of the shame associated with presenting with sexual problems. And so it gave a whole group of men and a whole group of medical practitioners opportunities to talk in ways which opened up, you know, a massive environment of problems which had previously just not been spoken about at all. And I think we still are benefiting from that huge gain that that we that we all we all got, but but the other end the other other side of it all is that the you know the Viagra issue associated with erectile dysfunction as it is creates this expectation that doctors are going to have a single pull or a single kind of treatment that is going to be able to make everything come right. So into your office comes somebody comes some, who, who wouldn't usually talk about their sexual health. And the last thing they want to do is to speak in detail about the most important underlying issues, which are in fact contributing what their feelings are about it. What they want is a pull to make it all get better. So, so there's also the subtle message um, social message, which is reinforced by the way a lot of medicine is practiced, that there are simple, easy routes for being able to, to make something right. So if you have a hydraulic problem, you really just need something which is going to change the pressure differentials in order to get the right erection. And this bypasses altogether the idea of pleasure. So you're talking about functionality. Does it work or does it not work? Uh, you know, will I be able to uh, get an erection at the time when I need to have the erection. And that takes you away from those conversations around pleasure. And, and in fact, it's quite tricky because when you open up that kind of conversation, certainly amongst um, your patients who are a little bit less used to speaking about it, they're a little bit confounded. You know, like so much, you, you've got to, first of all, train your patients to feel comfortable to speak about it to begin with. You also need to open up the, the kind of terms of the discussion because their perception of you is that you're a doctor who fixes things that's broken, not somebody who is enhancing things 
which may not even be broken, but which aren't as good as they'd like them to be. So, you know, there's this, I, mean, we, we, I think within society, this is definitely changing, but um, often the expectation is that, you know, if you, you, you wouldn't go to a doctor unless something was broken. And doctors have that idea as well. And we know that that really is something which isn't quite right. And that good health, whether it be health or uh, functioning, is really very much associated with the higher end of feeling comfortable, enhanced, uh, just benefiting from, 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 feeling, from feeling good, not just the baseline of being adequate. So, so I don't know if that, um, Katrina, uh, does answer the question a little bit, because, I mean, the issue of pleasure, and we, we all know within sexual medicine that this is increasingly becoming a, a key part of the discussion and a way of trying to get people away from this kind of outcomes-based, um, performance-orientated perception of what it means to be sexually healthy, which in itself is destructive to people's sexual health. No, you, you described it, you know, that just kind of light bulb went off in my head when you were describing that, that, you know, people's perceptions is that doctors fix what is broken or what's wrong. So they make it better. You know, even if you think about little kids, their perception is that doctors make us feel better. And, mm. you know, mm. when, when you, if I think about something as extreme as cancer, okay, when one is diagnosed with cancer, obviously the priority is not to ensure that sexual pleasure is maintained. I understand that, but it's just always been, you know, it's something that really does fascinate me. And, you know, I oscillate very close to when it comes to my doctoral work in wanting to explore more is this, is this idea of why, why sexual health is not deemed as important as mental health and physical health and sexual pleasure is, is part of our sexual health. So I guess it's a fine line, isn't it? And it's a real balancing act because as the, the medical professional who is there to help people feel better, that doesn't necessarily always extend to feel better and then enhance, as you said, which I think is a really, really interesting point. But you, you also said something there, you know, you, you touched specifically on men, and I mean, I'm a, I identify as a woman and interestingly, I, well, I don't know if this is interesting or if this is just understandable, but the majority of my clients are women. That's not to say that I don't see men um, mm. and th those who identify as men, but the majority of the, the people contacting me identify as women. And I, I wonder as a medical professional who's working, you know, who, who specializes in sexual health, if you see a lot more men than you see women because you are a, you know, a doctor and there's this perception of, oh, it's broken. He will fix it. Yes. Yes. I, I mean, I think I do overall. Uh, I'd say that the vast majority of the sexual health consultations and discussions are, are definitely with men across the age groups from increasingly younger men to middle and then older men as well. Um, and they, they come from different vantage points. You know, there can be somebody who comes exclusively for a sexual problem because they know that that's one of the things I do to somebody who's been a, a, a patient of mine for a very, very long time uh, and will just feel comfortable to be able to discuss something which they can't discuss at home or which they're encountering a problem with. So, and it, it becomes, I, I really do think that it is, it's not a speciality, but there are particular angles in which you, um, you approach dealing with, with men, I mean, one always hates to generalize because there's so many inter-individual differences between men and one doesn't really want to, to, to generalize too much. 
but maybe there are some trends that one can identify. Um, and I think, I mean, the one, the one subgroup is, is really men who are a bit more conservative, have got quite old fashioned ideas of what masculinity means, which often, and if they're older, they, they, they would be relatively rigidly held ideas. So they kind of come in um, often with associated medical problems. And then it just seems very natural to at least have the concern, to have the conversation, often with limited language, you know, to, to describe what is going on. And it's a, it's a limited conversation, but you don't really need a very sophisticated conversation to help quite a lot. And then, you know, just to spread it out a little bit, increasingly young men who, who, who feel comfortable to be able to discuss the kinds of issues which, which younger men are, are starting to increasingly um, experience. And, and I think that's something which also is interesting uh, for us to, do, to discuss a little bit further. Yeah, but, I was, I was going to say we need to discuss that because there is so hmm. much stigma around that. For men overall, when it comes to sexual health, I find that there's, you know, there's everlasting stigma. But I see so many young men and there's so much shame in the fact that they are young and they are experiencing sexual health difficulties. Yes, yes. I mean, I think that's a very it's a very interesting phenomenon, and I think it's a it's a confluence of so many different socio-cultural factors that has caused multiple young men to increasingly present with problems to their doctors, um, maybe psychologists as well. And I mean, if I was just to give a range of the kinds of problems, so you'd often have a problem with libido, with uh, you know feeling that they're not sufficiently libidinous, um, with problems with erection. So yeah, so they would they would come in typically and say that they're not as interested in sex as they think they should be, or they're feeling that they wish you know they're in a partnership um, and sometimes not in a partnership, and they feel that they aren't feeling that they, they, the amount of desire that they're experiencing, the amount of sexual desire, is just flat, or they just feel flat, or they just don't feel anything, and then that 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 may open up a conversation to actually also. Um, encompass the sufficiency of the erection and maybe also the timing of ejaculation and then a subsection of, of, of young men who are kind of preoccupied with the appearance of their penises and with little blemishes and spots and, and sometimes with kind of phantom phantom because you don't really identify an underlying specific cause but like feelings like difficulties in passing urine or just like strange sensations in the pelvic area which they then have become worrisome to them and they're needing an answer for so i've almost given you a full menu of all the kinds of different problems um that 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 can can present i mean we can go into some of those in a bit more detail i mean and this menu that you've just given to us these are all quite normal. I think it's important for us to say they're, they're normal issues that young men or older men could face when it comes to their sexuality and their sexual functioning. Because I think there's such a belief that it should work. And my friends say that sex is, is great for them and they have no issues, you know, climaxing and having an orgasm and yes, having yes. an erection for hours. And then I watch porn when I masturbate and, you know, those guys keep erections for, you know, the full hour of the porn, even though research shows us that men don't watch a porn clip for longer than 30 seconds. I don't know whoever gets to the full hour. <laughs> but I mean, th this is, this is the, the information that men are being fed. They're hearing from other men, perhaps, 
that there's there's a different type of sexual functioning from the way they're experiencing sex. They're seeing it in movies. They're seeing it in pornography. And that's so detrimental to what normal sexual functioning looks like. And I often have to say to young men who come to see me with, you know, erectile dysfunction, often it's situational, meaning they're only experiencing it with a partner. They're totally fine getting it, uh, getting it up when they are on their own, that actually it's quite, it's quite normal that a young man will experience, you know, n- not being able to get it up at some stage in his younger life. So it's Absolutely. What, what you're talking about is just normalizing these, these difficulties that men can face sexually, right? Totally right. You know, there's two sides of this of this point that you've just made. Um, the, the first is that expectations are unrealistic, and it's I mean it's it's interesting to speculate as to why that's the case, and and I think partially this is because there's just so much pressure on young people to perform, and that performance doesn't just extend you know into their you know, maybe it's their educational, occupational, um, the way that they look and are presented. Uh, to their peers, and that extends into their sexual performance as to who they are. So identity, who they are, what gives them a sense of security in their sexuality, it it has been kind of hyped up to a degree. And as you correctly mentioned, the kind of um, sex education that is gained from watching pornography, it it unfortunately has has quite a detrimental effect on the kinds of expectations that, that many men have. And then, you know, it's accompanied by a lack of flexibility around what is normal, exactly that. And then to be able to persuade, it's, I don't know if you've had this experience, but sometimes you, you will know what's normal and what's not, not and you're, you know, the, the, the young man who comes in, in fact, is quite certain that there's something wrong. I, I mean, I've certainly had a few cases where I've tried to normalize what is very, very normal experiences and found a lot of resistance and had to work relatively hard to kind of work through the resistance to this firmly held belief of what actually is acceptable. I, I don't, have you had anything similar to that? I mean, absolutely. You know, so many people think that a sexologist makes people have a lot of sex for a living, but that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. What, what we do, you know, mm. as a clinical sexologist is actually help people to dismantle their pre-existing mm. beliefs around sex, which are mm. often unhelpful and often mm. completely skewed from the truth or from mm. reality. So yes, absolutely. And it's it's that shift in in their belief system around sex that can make a big difference but you actually I want to go back to a point you made a little while ago which is what you know and I hear this from my clients as well is you know can't you just give me a pill and it will be fixed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. absolutely that of course that can help a lot of the time and sometimes I will say to some of my clients I honestly just think that if you you know, if you're happy to try a Viagra, I think that if you see you can actually get an erection just that one time from taking one Viagra, that actually you'll be okay because it's overcoming that initial performance anxiety that they might have or, you know, whatever it's related to. But I guess for you as a medical professional, and you spoke to the mental health difficulties of COVID earlier, how Mm. are you navigating that kind of need for a biopsychosocial approach with your patients and by biopsychosocial I mean you know navigating the medical the psychological the lifestyle and so on because they're all wanting a pill to just fix it I'm assuming it, it can be very difficult I mean the one the one thing that I try to do is if I know there's a patient who's got something who's got a clear sexual problem I'll want to set aside time because you know the factors in in general medical practice which are apart from the the, the doctor and the patient, which are restricting on 
the capacity to be able to adequately address sexual problems. You know, apart from the training of the doctors, there's just the time, the, the kind of time that you have. And as you alluded to earlier, when you've got three items on the list and the first two are immediate physical problems that need to be sorted out and people are actually ill and sick, it leaves very little opportunity to discuss that third problem. But just to say, but, but having said all of that, um, if you do have that time and, and, and you can make that time, once there's permission to be able to speak a little bit more, a little bit more openly, you, you, you find that in general, most people find that there is some relief and they will start to break down the very kind of narrow need that they have just for a tablet. They, they, and even if they don't respond very well by being kind of psychologically articulate, they'll know that they can be or that there's space for them to speak maybe at, an, at the next consultation. So, I mean, certainly with general practice, you don't think of just the one consult. You think, you think broadly around all the conversations that you've had, that you're having at the moment and the ones you're going to have in the future. Always keep that in mind. But the other thing is, is to also be quite careful about how you cultivate the relationship of your patient with your medication. And that's the same thing that I would do if I'm prescribing an antidepressant type medication. The, the nature of the relationship with that medicine is very important in uh, creating an environment to benefit from it, but also to have a healthy relationship so that that person isn't relying on it as if it's the only thing that's going to make them better. I mean, one of the metaphors I use is like trailing, training wheels. You know, if you see the Viagra as being something which is a training wheels, which is going to train your brain to be able to find those pathways which are going to allow you to get that erection back again. Um, and if you then utilize it just in order to get that erection, and then you try without the tablet or with a half a dose or every second time that you are going to potentially need it. So the medicine becomes an aid rather than an end to itself. And, uh, and, and that way you start also to open up the conversation for a whole lot of other factors, the relationship with a partner, fears, uh, ways of thinking about things. You, you mentioned earlier about um, you know, the kinds of mindsets that we have to counsel people. And I mean, I was just thinking to myself, there's two things when somebody walks into your office, there's two things that you'll immediately notice, which are going to be predictors of whether they, if it's a sexual problem, you're going to be able to help them. And the first is the level of anxiety. And the second is the stereotypical level of whether they identify with traditional male characteristics or masculine characteristics. So those are two predictors, which are going to tell you that you're going to have some kind of core mindset, which is contributing in a large part to all of this. And then utilizing the language of that person to be able to incorporate and allow them to be able to um, work, uh, to be able to um, improve the problem and utilizing the medication in that way as well. Using the mindset and the language and the phraseology and the metaphors that your patients bring with you. you now, they'll often put a whole lot of metaphors on your desk and you can then pick them up off the desk and then wrap them around your conversation about how you're going to help them with the sexual problem or with the erectile dysfunction or whatever it may be. I, I really like that, Anthony, because essentially you are, you are working with your patient in giving them permission, but working in the words that they know and they are comfortable with and they use. And it's something we get taught very early on in, in, um, in our training to become, you know, therapists is that you work with your client's language. So, I think that there's a lot of power in that. I mean, I could do an entire podcast episode on just the power mm. of language um, and words in this field particularly. But you give your, your patient permission in that moment 
to be speaking about it in a way that's more comfortable for them because you know they, you know, you particularly know that they are the one that will hold more anxiety than you do. But those two characteristics, anxiety and, you know, adhering to traditional masculine traits, very, very fascinating. I would say with women, it's absolutely anxiety as well. And then mm. with women, mm. it's, it's, it's personality type. So very often when you have a very anxious, when I have a very anxious client in front of me, if mm. uh, she is somebody who, you know, needs to feel like she's in control and struggles to let go, it's guaranteed mm. that she's going to experience sexual difficulties. But that very often is due to nurture, not necessarily nature, as are the the two kind of traits you spoke about with men when they're walking into your office. But now do you do you see a difference between younger men and older men when it comes to talking about sexual health? Because I I think, you know, Millennials have a different language in itself yes, um, yeah. and a different way of communicating altogether. So, so does that mean there's a different way to talk about these things? Or do you find that this, there's an intergenerational passing on of ways of communicating around one's sexual health? I think there are some very significant differences. And the, the 65-year-old and the 25-year-old are, are, are just worlds apart in, in their experience of the world and, and the kind of sexual education or miseducation, as the case may be, that they may be getting. Um, and my experience with, with younger men is that a few things. The first is that once they finish the conversation, they are so grateful to have had that conversation. I, I mean, it's like, it's a revelation. There are perhaps a little more, well, a lot more, they're more curious, are more open to having a more detailed discussion. I mean, maybe it's a self-selected group who, who are open to having the conversation to begin with. Um, I think they do come from a point of having an education which is much more explicit. On the one hand, they won't have rigid mindsets and that they'll be open-minded. But on another level, would be more rigid with regards to anxiety. This is a strange paradox, in fact, is that your younger males may be a little bit more anxious in a pedantic way. Um, uh, sometimes a little bit of OCD can, can creep into that. Uh, very keen to speak about the topic, but, uh, but very, very um, kind of needing to be a little bit more flexible around the anxiety associated with it. Whereas with, with older men, you know, they're, they're a little bit more relaxed about their bodies. They've been battered around by life you know, to, to a greater or lesser degree, they may be a little bit more hesitant to speak about it to start off with and not have the language to be able to talk about it, but are, are, are seemingly more, more relaxed and more kind of a little bit less fussed about a solution that you may present to them. It's an interesting kind of paradox in, 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 in this response that you get. Um, but definitely your approach to them is, di is different. I, I mean, sometimes if you're speaking to a man who's 20 years, 15 to 20 years, your senior, as opposed to one who's 15 to 20 years, your junior, your position relative to them is also very different as to how they perceive you, you know, as a the kind of figure that they perceive you with. Is it more of a kind of a, a, a brotherly, a fatherly? Is it more of a, a kind of a senior as a teacher? You know, you have different roles that you potentially play, and it depends then on what kind of role you are with regards to them. Um, but I will say that your younger, younger patients are invariably very curious, keen to learn, uh, and very grateful for the opportunity to have an open 
non-judgmental discussion whereby they can just kind of download what's been on their mind and what's been going round and round and round and round. Um, and, and well, I think across the board, people are, are, are very grateful to have those discussions. But I certainly do see that in, in, in my younger clients. That's, re- that's really, really fascinating. But then another, another kind of element of that kind of came to my mind while you were sharing your experiences, which was that of the, the doctor being the voice of authority versus, mm. and I've seen this in my practice, versus the therapist. So in psychology, very often, I'd say, I'd not say very often, but often it's, no, 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 the psychologist is too young for me. And I had that early on in my career and I never took it personally because if, if I'm not the right therapist for you, this is never going to work. I say that to all of my clients. You have to feel that you're mm. seeing the right person, that you're comfortable with the person that you're seeing. So I, I do think that there's also a sense of, well, you're a doctor. So there's a, I feel safe here and you're a voice of authority. Whereas if you're seeing a general psychologist there may be a reluctance to speak about sexual health. And I know this because I've had lots of clients come to me or be referred to me. And in their email, they'll say, I'm, I'm coming to see you. I am in therapy, but I don't feel comfortable talking to my therapist about this. That's very, very common. Do you think that also plays a part in it when it comes to men speaking to you about sex? And I suppose I want to caveat that with one more thing, which is to say what I see in that dynamic between you know, cisgender men and cisgender women is that women will come and see me far quicker, whereas men will go and see the doctors far quicker, and then they'll get told to come and see me by the doctors. Yes, yes, ex- exactly. I, I mean, I think that is certainly in the the, the more traditional male. That's um, that's very much the case. I mean, you almost need to have a, a, a portal to enter into the discussion. And if you're talking about cardiovascular risk, diabetes. Uh, you're talking about side effects of medication, you're talking about prostates, you've, you've got this immediate kind of seek point, you know, this to, to be able to enter into a discussion, which otherwise your male patient or older male patient just wouldn't have considered speaking to you about. So it, it kind of, you, and that, that's why it's, 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 a, it's a very valuable and privileged role um, in, the, in the medical sense. I, I mean, so, so I think that there are opportunities for when to, to have these discussions as a as a medical doctor, which, which, which certainly a therapist may, may not have, though, though I think it probably works the other way. If somebody perceives their problem as being primarily psychological, they'd be less likely to speak to um, a male GP like myself. So, so it, I suppose it swings both ways. As we know, you know, all physical sexual health problems have a psychological component, and many, many that, uh, sexual health problems that present a psychological problems also have a physical problem. So there is this kind of weird overlap that occurs between therapy and medicine. And I'm pretty clear, you know, while I may do some counseling, I don't do therapy with my patients. You know, it's, it's counseling insofar as discussions, being able to help with very specific bits of advice, and then also to work as a pivotal part in a multidisciplinary team, whereby I know and work with therapists and physiotherapists and various people who would then look at different dimensions of the whole thing. So I think there is this respect that all that that we that certainly I have and, and that we all have working in this field of, of where different strengths are and how different people come in at different angles, different um, health providers to be able to be able to cover the bases and be able to uh, meet the, the specific needs that, that that arise. But I mean, coming back then to to your, your kind of average male, I, I mean, I do agree with you that you know when you've got a very specific, very 
particular problem, you know, somebody who's coming in with um, after he's had his prostate removed and has got erectile dysfunction, you know, that, that's so specific and the expectation and that will just, you know, overwhelmingly present to a doctor. Just, you know, as you were touching on the prostate, the topic of, uh, of kind of prostate cancer and post prostatectomies and things like that, I was just starting to think about again, how sexual pleasure is not the forefront of one's treatment protocol, of course, you know, so again, there's this, this need for perhaps the patient to be assertive and to feel they are entitled to and need allowed to be assertive in the medical care that they're getting. So when a man is diagnosed with prostate cancer and if he should need to have a prostatectomy or he has, uh, that is the removal of the prostate or he has, you know, particular cancer treatments for that, like um, radiation therapy and so on, it will, there's no way it's not going to affect his sexual functioning. And I know I've mm-hmm. seen that it's just not spoken about enough, but also different the different elements of, of sexual functioning are not spoken about enough. So often erectile functioning is spoken about, but there's this kind of lack of discussion around pleasure or ejaculation or what whatever else it might be. And the the uh, as I've said in this in this chat now already several times, it's just sexual functioning is never necessarily the most important thing to be discussed in treatment. Obviously it's making sure this guy survives and making sure he's okay and comes out on the other side of it. But again, it's about empowering patients in the medical space like you do to get people to talk about these things more, you know, to get people to, to ask more questions. And I guess it's a lot of what I do in my work, which is really Mm. to promote curiosity in people because it gets shut down. I mean, if we just think about the, you know, when we're born, we are blank slates effectively. And as little children, we have immense amounts of curiosity. We want to explore the world. We want to learn about things. And of course we have to learn some things are dangerous and some things are safe and sex majority of the time is dangerous. Sex is shameful. It's embarrassing. Mm. We shouldn't go there. So we Mm. very, very early on in life shut down our curiosity around sex. And Mm. the thing that I work so tirelessly with my clients, with healthcare providers, when I'm I'm doing workshops and talks to try and instill in them that you, you have to be curious as a healthcare provider with your patient rather than make assumptions. But the patient or the client has to be curious in asking Mm. questions. You know, so teachers told us there's no such thing as a stupid question. Rather ask it and get the information. So yeah. how can patients empower themselves more when it comes to their sexual health with their, with their doctors? I mean, what, you, what you're saying does hit at the nub of the whole thing because when, when you're, you're, I mean, we can talk about older patients or anybody really, it's, it's so much about the expectation that you carry into what is normal for you. And then something comes to upend that. You know, it could be a stressful environment that you've gone through, a huge stress. It could be a, a clear physical problem that you've had. And then, or, or let's take the example of a man who is 65, has had prostate cancer, um, has uh, had to uh, have a, has had a prostatectomy. Um, maybe it's come back, the, you know, a year later it's come back and he's needed a, an anti-hormone treatment or something. So, you know, it's a whole disturbance. And what he's ended up with is the incapacity to be able to sustain an erection. And then as a result, a whole lot of things unfold in his own mind because he's had a consistent 
relationship with his wife or let's say he's married we'll just kind of make it a relatively heteronormative example um and there's been a particular kind of exchange uh, and understanding of what their sexual relationship is not everything is upended uh, both for him and for his wife so uh, the, the, the curiosity you talk about, and that it's, it's really about open-mindedness and about flexibility of mind. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're flexible, you are able to move with the changing circumstances. So it's about opening up and, and giving the possibility, opening the possibility to your patient of, of different options that are out there for what it means to be a sexual person. And then to transfer that, not only in his own mind, um, but in that of his partner's mind as well, whoever that, whoever that may be. Um, and that can, in fact, be a little bit of a problem because sometimes um, it's the partner who is acting as a limit to the capacity to be creative or open-minded within the relationship. So, in fact, the truism in sexual health is that there's always three, um, three, three patients you're seeing. There's the two the two partners, the, the, the two uh, individuals within the partnership, and then you have the actual partnership. So you, you, you need to attend to all of those. But once again, I think it's coming down to conversations, trust, and the capacity to be able to open up um, experiences for your patient. In general practice, because you aren't, and in my kind of work, because you're not going to be spending an hour doing therapy, it's often about introducing to various resources and keeping up the conversation, um, being able to introduced to the right therapist or, or to somebody who can um, uh, allow just a different way of thinking. It also comes down to, we haven't discussed too much around the mental health side of things and about the, the, the levels of anxiety that, that often are associated with uh, sexual health problems and also the capacity of medications that are used for depression and anxiety to, to interrupt one's sexual function. But I mean, I'd be interested to hear also how you in these scenarios open up the creative, flexible world to your to your patients, and I think sometimes just having the discussion and then pushing them in the direct in the in the right direction, encouraging them, and keeping up that interaction so that you're getting feedback of how things are over time, it, it can go a very very long way. Absolutely, but but also knowledge is power. So. Mm giving our, our clients, our patients information, you know, whether it's in the form of a book, a pamphlet, a website, a podcast episode, mm, mm. Um, whatever it may be to empower them through knowledge to normalize their experience. You know, I, the second episode I did on this, on this podcast on season one was with a fantastic online platform for men, although they are branching out and there's a lot of exciting things to come. Call, uh, uh, it's a platform called Mojo Men that started with two cousins who had a very awkward conversation just on a whim one day in, in the car um, about the fact that both of them were struggling to get it up. And they thus developed this incredible platform for men to learn more about this issue, psychogenic erectile dysfunction, which is where there's a psychological cause for not yeah. being able to get it up. So if I've got a young man coming to see me, I'll send him straight away after our first session before, I mean, in the first session, I'm just doing an assessment. I'm just trying to learn a little bit about the different pieces of this puzzle. I haven't actually done much in terms of a therapeutic intervention at that stage. So I will always give my clients resource upon resource upon resource because 
what what I find is that the more people know, the more curious they become. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. you know, it mm-hmm. isn't like I thought it was. There are other mm-hmm. men out there who aren't getting it up. And look, these two cousins, you know, Angus and Zander, they're in their, you know, late 20s, early 30s. They couldn't get it up either. And there were mm-hmm. differing reasons as to why they couldn't get up. And it, it's it's through that that there's this increase I see in curiosity that leads to this um, openness in the space in therapy and being able to talk about that more and for me to challenge one's, you know, very long-standing beliefs and ideas when it comes to how I should be sexually. Yeah. And, and I think often, I don't know if you also find this, that for those who, who, who take the leap, who see that they can reformulate how they see themselves as sexual beings, they incredibly grateful because they've been offered an opportunity through the, the the lens of their problem to be able to see a different side of themselves and their partners and explore something entirely different, which otherwise they never would have had to look at. They would have continued in a relatively restricted pattern for, you know, with their partner. And I'm talking now about, you know, older men really uh, over a long period of time. And, and this gives them like so many psychological, Psychological issues or like so many traumas, there's, there's this underlying um, potential within that trauma to be able to grow and learn and to be able to move forward. And, um, and, and if your, your client or your patient is able to do that, they come away going, well, that was a remarkable experience that I had. I've learned so much, you know, so, so many different and new avenues of how I think about myself and my partner and my, my sexuality have um, have developed out of this and and that I'm grateful for that. I, I mean, I think I think that's what you're describing and that's the great gift of this kind of therapy potentially. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. It, it's, gosh, you know, the most challenging work but the most rewarding work mm. at the same time. But I, I mean, I, I really do wonder, I mean, I as I mentioned earlier, I get so many clients uh, who contact me that are women um, and I just, what even the research shows us this too, that women are going to reach mm. out far quicker than men. Yes. Support. yes. Why is that? Why is it that men don't reach out, that they don't want to seek support? Is it going back to what we were chatting about at the start of this conversation around stigma and shame and embarrassment, or is there more to it, do you think? Well, I, th- I think um, it's a complex issue um, because I think it is changing a little bit, but it's only really with, with, with younger men and with some older men. But fundamentally, it came, comes down to identity as to how you see yourself as a man, what constitutes, what cons, what constitutes strength and weakness, um, and the kind of mentality that comes from, well, I'm going to try and figure it out myself as to I know this is something that I need help with um, and that I, I have a language and I have a model in my mind of being able to um, be able to get the kind of help that'll help me with this particular kind of problem. And I think women's sexuality, for better or for worse, has become, throughout their lives, to some degree becomes medicalized, but also becomes something that they find a language and are compelled to speak about. Um, and their arenas and, and, and places for them to be able to talk in ways that they just aren't for men. Um, you know, whether it become whether it's with a gynecologist, obstetricians during childbirth, during the discussion of, you know, whether it's about um, 
talking about uh, you know, breast health or other aspects of, of, of women's health. So there's a language which has been cultivated from quite early on and then passed on within networks. And I think that health caring, seeking networks within um, more, more female environments are so much more better cultivated. And, and they, they really are like a default norm in, in the more, certainly in, in more conservative uh, areas. Um, it's women who are the gatekeepers. I mean, I see this in general practice, you know, men who come because their wives have told them to come or their girlfriends have said that they must come. And it's seldom the other way around. So there's the social um, kind of burden, you could call it, or just a social um, environment whereby women hold the, 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 the carer's role. And um, to some, you know, I mean, we can critique that. And I think there's a lot of room for critiquing that. But, but I think that does um, rob men and also uh, weakens their capacity to be able to um, take the initiative. And, and I do see that things are changing a little bit. And the one way in which it can change is if you start clothing the, the presentation of sexual problems in a, in a physical mode. Um, I mean, you, you, so, so, so that, that allows men, the, the, these are the doors through which men feel more comfortable speaking about things. And we know that um, erectile dysfunction now is almost seen as a medical equivalent in older men. Um, as a, a, a vasculopathy, which is predictive of ischemic heart disease and atherosclerosis at a later age. So there is this melding of um, what can be seen as being a psychological weakness and what is a physical uh, potential problem, which is a channel to be able to get men to talk more about their sexual health. But to get back to your original question about, about men, I think it's very, very complex. And it's a lot about social learning. Um, it's a lot about the roles that we play in society um, and about the kind of expected relationships that they have with, um, with their doctors. And it is interesting because in primary care, there's a big shift, a demographic shift that the doctors are, are increasingly, um, you know, the, the amount of, of doctors being trained in medical schools are, are, are mostly female at the moment compared to 15, 20 years ago. And it's gonna be interesting to see what happens in primary care as to whether this is something which facilitates men speaking more or inhibits it. Um, I haven't got an answer to that. Maybe a contentious question, but it remains to be seen. Mm. Yeah. That's very, very interesting. I mean, in the, in the psychology profession, it's about 80 to 85% women. And I, I guess with the younger generation, as you say, yes, there more might be high levels of anxiety or this kind of pedanticness you, you've experienced. But there is a shift from the older generation, the younger generation, in the way that they approach different subjects and the way that they mm. are open uh, and curious about you know, different things to do with themselves or to do with others. And I guess I wonder then, yeah, if, is there going to be this moving away from a traditional um, model, I guess, around healthcare where, you know, men went into medicine and women went into therapy more often if there might actually be a switch in the end. Mm. Um, mm. I guess we'd have to wait and see. Maybe in yeah. season 10 of the podcast, we can discuss it. Um, <laughs> but I, I want to finish off, Anthony, with asking you in the, in the work that you've done in sexual health, what's been the most surprising thing when it comes to helping men with their sexual concerns that they have? What is really kind of, you know, when you think about it, taken you by surprise? Yeah, I, I think there's a surprise element and then there's the... Um, 
the reward element, you know, the, what, what, what is surprising and then what is rewarding in, 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 in this. And, and I th- maybe one can be surprised by the rewarding, the rewarding aspect of being able to discuss this. I think w- what one, of, one of the things which really stands out for me is the incredible, um, should I say, the, 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 when somebody you've known for a long time, maybe a, a man in his mid-60s or 70s, who find, starts to find the words and to find um, a new avenue to discuss elements of his sexuality um, insofar as he's able to start uh, improving and repairing and to, to, to really grow in terms of uh, after a sexual problem which he may have encountered with a physical illness or otherwise. And how that relationship with that person, uh, the doctor-patient relationship, has just so um, matured and, and has been able to just lead to so many better health outcomes as a result. Just the, the fact that you've been able to help somebody on that level really has so many incredibly uh, positive effects. But I think it's just the, you know, the nuances and the extent of the conversations and the capacity to be able to help in so many different um, nuanced areas of, of um and, and how interesting it is has really fed back to me and has um, has always provoked um, me to my own curiosity, uh, necessity to to learn new things, um, and to be able to uh, be sufficiently um, informed to be able to help my patients. So it's just the challenge of it all is also something which I, I really appreciate. And I wonder if that's even going to develop. In a in a further direction as the years go by and as as the world around us changes, and it's been so interesting chatting to you today. I'm looking forward to another discussion in season three. Um, but where do people find you? How can people get hold of you and find out about your work you're doing? Well, the best is probably just to go into my website. They'll get some information from there on DrAnthonySmith.co.za. Um, and yeah, that's probably the best. I'm not Twittering. I don't Facebook, but uh, my website will give you all the information you need. Awesome. I have a little bit of uh, envy there when you said you don't social media. It's a love-hate relationship with that, <laughs> I must tell you. So yeah. people can find you there. That's awesome. Thank you so much um, for chatting to me today. I look forward to another chat with you not so far ahead into the future. Katrina, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you. And keep up all the really excellent work you're doing. Thanks. This episode was sponsored by Desir. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FORAFRIEND. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you would rate and review it. Do you have a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram, and I'll be sure to include it in an upcoming episode.